Welcome to the New Books Network. How much of U.S. power is underground? By which I mean, we hear a lot about U.S. military assets used on land, on sea, in the air, but not much about what's going on underground and on the seabed. And it turns out that what goes on down there is a significant source of U.S. power, and it's been documented by Henry Farrell in his co-authored book, Underground Empire, How America Weaponized the World Economy. So welcome to you. Delighted to be here. And and basically your point is the US has more surveillance capacity underground, undersea, than most people realize. That's correct. And it's because the networks that hold globalization uh, together, all of these networks, uh, whether they be networks that convey financial information, whether they convey information like the internet, whether they're supply chains, all of these in some way or another converge on the United States. And as Abraham Newman and I had documented in the book that is forthcoming, uh, this provides the United States with the opportunity to use these networks both to listen into what the world is saying and also as necessary to control what people are able to say or send to each other so that, for example, the United States has been able to uh, use its network power to interdict entire countries such as Iran and prevent them from having access to uh, global financial networks. And in terms of the infrastructure that enables America to do this, it was basically put in place at the time that America was at its height, in its power was strong, and, and that's why it was able to do this. That's absolutely right. And this was not a plot by the United States. Instead, it, it is because, as you say, in the 1990s, when the United States was at the apex of its power, this is also the time when globalization really began to get, began to get going. So if you were building these global networks as a uh, business in the private sector, you probably saw the United States as being uh, the place that you wanted to be. And so these networks naturally tended to have their centers in places that the United States either had direct control there on U.S. territory or else was able to use its reach in order to extend its uh, control abroad. And so in a certain sense, the networks that hold globalization together, if they center on the United States because of globalization having happened when it did, that then provided the United States after September 11th with unparalleled ability to use these networks in order to exert power. And as Abraham and I suggest, to create a kind of underground empire. So let's just deal with each area of technology one by one. And you have an astonishing claim about the internet, and uh, I'm not sure I've got the wording exactly right, but something like all but 1% of internet bandwidth, we'll talk about what you mean by that, for messages between regions goes through the states physically, right? So, So this was true back in the 1990s. It is not nearly so true now. So part of what we document in the book is that these networks have to some extent They have uh, disconnected from the United States uh, to a greater degree, certainly in the last decade or so, than than, than was true in the past. But when we were in the uh, peak of U.S. power, you did see this. And the uh, figure that we get, this is actually from the National Security Agency, as uh, best as I remember. And the National Security Agency is basically just quite delighted that so much of the world's information passes through places that it is capable of reaching in and then turning the internet into a kind of vast uh, distributed surveillance system that it can then use to really listen into what its adversaries, what its allies are saying to each other, and then scoop off the cream and provide that to uh, its masters and uh, and give them a considerable advantage in uh, being uh, being able to figure out what it is that people actually are thinking, what it is that they are doing, and then allow the United States to respond accordingly. So are you saying a message, an email, 
sent from, I don't know, Democratic Republic of Congo to South Korea might go through the US. Uh, that is correct, because if you look at the way that uh, maps uh, of the global internet work, really these maps are uh, maps of the physical systems that allow for internet communications to pass from point A to point B. And very often these are intercontinental fiber optic cables of one sort or another. And so many of these cables actually passed through the United States. And so this then allowed the United States to install uh, bugging equipment uh, so that uh, literally uh, you saw these uh, these cables coming in and coming into these major uh, switches, which were controlled by U.S. telecommunications companies. And there were rooms that these uh, companies had, which were dedicated to the NSA, where it was possible then, uh, so half of the signal got split off into a specialized system, which could then trawl it for interesting information and pass uh, interesting or useful information back up to the mothership. Now, of course, technologically, it obviously turned out very often to be messier than that. Uh, all of these systems, they don't work as well in practice as they do in principle. And as I say, it has, uh, over the last decade or two decades, the United States has become less central to the internet than it used to be. If, if you think about how the internet works, the internet works through a decentralized system which tries to figure out what is the fastest way to get from point A to point B. And you might think that within a national network, you're always going to want to stay within the national network to get the information from one point to another if it's happening within a single country. But it could be that it actually is faster to zip the information out to fiber optic cables, which are controlled by the United States, rather than slower domestic services, and bounce it back in and that allows you for uh, that allows for faster uh, faster internet communications, but also at the same time it allows the United States to take a look at the information and to figure out if there is anything interesting that it wants to uh, get its hands on. That's astonishing. So if I sent an email, uh, yeah, I'm in Wales at the moment to London, it might go through America. Probably less likely for the United Kingdom because the United Kingdom has a, a very extensive and uh, quite well built uh, network. But if you're thinking about developing countries, it's a very different story. And also, if you think about the relationships that the United States has with its allies, there also are possibilities and opportunities there. This is something we don't talk about in the book, but the uh, Snowden cables, or the Snowden uh, leaks rather, they provide information which suggested that effectively the NSA had a lot of individual relationships with uh, UK or European companies which allowed it access to some of much of the information that they were getting and even if for example gchq was not capable of of tapping into the uh, communications of uk citizens there might be implicit workarounds which might allow the uh, other other countries uh, intelligence agencies to grab information and to use it that way so there is a so it's a very complicated very tangled system which did provide quite a lot of access to information probably less for the United Kingdom than for other countries because the United Kingdom had the so-called five eyes relationship with the uh, United States and a couple of other countries where they effectively agreed not to spy upon each other's communications. But uh, there were often a lot of uh, implied workarounds. Uh, certainly, for example, Germany, I've spoken to people who have suggested that uh, German intelligence services had great difficulty in tapping into the communications of domestic extremists because of the strength of German privacy law, so that they often worked around uh, this by uh, having informal relationship with the United States, which would provide them with access to information that they otherwise could not legally have gotten their hands on. Yeah, right. It's, it's rather parallel to the we can't torture, but you can torture for us sort of 
sort of method. Yeah. So, so just just to understand the scale of this, you said that the one percent figure, that you know one percent of traffic was is only one percent of traffic that didn't go through America, is changed now. Have you got a figure for what it is now? Uh, no, we don't have very good figures at the moment uh, for what it is. What I can say, as I say, is that the map of submarine cables has changed substantially since then. So it used to be a map which really centered very, very directly on the United States. Now, over the last decade uh, to 15 years, we've seen a lot of activity happening in Asia, which does not pass through the United States. And this has been the uh, source of some contention between the United States and China where the U.S. has used its legal powers and its authorities to try to prevent fiber optic cables being laid by companies such as Huawei, uh, which is a major Chinese telecommunications company, and Huawei's successor, in part because uh, they do not want China being able to do what the United States has done in the past, in part also because the more that this uh, information travels upon uh, cable systems, which the United States has more direct access to, the easier it is for the United States itself to conduct its surveillance and its spying. I was going to get on to China later, but maybe we should deal with it now then. So the, the contest with Huawei, which you know was big under Trump, wasn't it? And it was presented as uh, you know, partly Huawei getting access to surveillance capacity in the West. What you're writing about was at the center of that dispute, you think? Uh, very much so, very much so. And we've done a lot of, we've had a lot of conversations with people about uh, Huawei, which of course was a very, very big controversy in the United Kingdom. Uh, we saw uh, cabinet resignations and other things happening as a result of the bitter internal disputes over what should happen with Huawei. But really, if you think about what was happening there, I think the best way to understand it is not to focus on surveillance as such, but on the many ways in which you try to shape a network to uh, provide your uh, whole home country with political power. Because the consensus, as far as I can see it, is as follows. So Huawei is this big telecommunications company. It was building out the uh, infrastructure for world 5G communications. And this probably would have allowed China to listen in much more easily than it had in the past. But also Huawei's uh, equipment was notoriously quite leaky. That is, it's almost certain that the National Security Agency and other agencies were capable of listening in to figure out what was happening, whether you're using Huawei equipment, whether you're using somebody else's equipment. But what Huawei potentially provided China with was the opportunity and the ability to really shape the politics around global networks in the ways that the United States has in the past, and in a certain sense, perhaps to create an internet with Chinese characteristics. So you saw Huawei not simply looking to build out global telecommunications, but also engaging in all of these very, very dull-seeming, but quite important international forum forums in places like the International Telecommunications Union, where the ground rules of the internet are laid out, and Huawei wanted to press for a new form of running the internet, a new set of protocols to run the internet, which would have enabled much greater degrees of national control and much greater degrees of surveillance. And so the presumption there was that uh, what Huawei was doing was effectively creating an internet which would be much, much friendlier to authoritarian regimes and much friendlier to the kinds of not simply surveillance, but also control over what people say to each other that authoritarian regimes engage in. And one has to say, in fairness to the United States, there is a lot of evidence of surveillance. The evidence of the United States are looking to, for example, try to prevent people from talking to each other in the way that, uh, for example, China looks to prevent distance from talking to each other. There's uh, that That's not something that the United States has done at scale. 
It's interesting you mentioned the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, because I used to I used to cover that uh, when I was in Geneva as a correspondent a long time ago, and I got the impression then that they were basically helping governments get surveillance systems in place from private companies. Is is that am I right about that? That's basically what they do. So my sense of the International Telecommunications Union is that there was a very, very big fight, a political fight that happened in the 1990s over who was going to control the internet. And the battle was between, on the one hand, the International Telecommunications Union, which of course has been around since the day of the Telegraph. It's a old um, sort of United Nations type organization that has specialized in traditional forms of telecommunication. And this new body, this bunch of private entities such as ICANN, the uh, Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, uh, the and and uh, the Internet Engineering Task Force. These are private sector organ- dominated organizations, which were really being pushed by the United States. And so the battle was over whether or not the, these private sector organizations, which the United States was uh, backing, were going to prevail over the ITU or vice versa. And the ITU lost that fight back then. It found itself effectively being cut out of uh, control of the internet, which of course was uh, obviously the network that was capable of eating up the old traditional telecommunications uh, services. And so because of that, I think we saw uh, over a period after that an an implicit alliance between the actors who felt that they had been beaten out of that process, including the ITU, and including a lot of authoritarian countries as well, because the ITU, like the uh, United Nations, is a uh, club of states which provides authoritarian countries with a degree of influence, with a degree of authority that they did not have in the uh, IETF, certainly, at, nor in ICANN either, uh, even after uh, various reforms were introduced in ICANN that provided governments with a greater voice. So really, the ITU has been looking to increase its power. That implicitly and explicitly has been a somewhat pro-authoritarian agenda, if only because it provides authoritarian countries with more influence than they had under the uh, private sector arrangements. And then during the Trump administration, we saw uh, a lot of politics happening at the ITU around Chinese efforts to uh, promote influence and the Trump administration being uh, asleep at the wheel for the first part of this, and then panicking and reacting in a uh, very, very uh, harsh manner with uh, people like Mike Pompeo, talking about how he had to create a clean internet uh, after they realized that to some extent the horse had left the bar. Right. So uh, can, can you just give us then a summary of where you think this current contest is between the US and China Yeah, well, on surveillance capacity of the internet, uh, still very much in favour of the US, but you're saying China is is getting better at it, particularly in Asia. Would that be right? Uh, yes, I think China is getting better at it, and China is getting much, much better at exercising influence in international organisations, at it using uh, its using its bully pulpit in a sense, and using the problems and the unhappiness that there is among a lot of countries with uh, US dominance, using that in order to promote a uh, understanding of the internet which is uh, closer to Chinese interests. That said, I think that the Biden administration has done rather better at this than the Trump administration. The uh, Trump administration really was very, it it would deliver threats in a somewhat haphazard way to countries which did things such as uh, installing uh, Huawei equipment. Uh, There was a famous threat which was issued by uh, Richard Grenell, who was really Trump's hatchet man in Europe. He was the ambassador to Germany, to the United Kingdom, suggesting that it would get kicked out of the Five Eyes Alliance if it did not 
if it if it uh, went ahead and uh, installed uh, Huawei equipment, as it was suggesting it was going to do. So the Trump administration was big on threats. Uh, the Biden administration, I think, has returned to a more traditional form of multinational diplomacy and has been doing rather better at that, but is also finding, I think, that uh, the United States does not have the natural dominance that it used to have. Uh, if you look back even during the Obama administration, there was an assumption uh, that the United States made and that was made by many of its allies that the United States was the, quote, leader of the free world, unquote, and that even if uh, many of its allies didn't necessarily like everything that the U.S. Uh, was doing, that they nonetheless grudgingly had to go along with it. And that assumption, I think, has been dramatically weakened over the uh, four years of the Trump administration, so that I think that the Biden people are having a far, far more difficult time, especially with non-aligned countries, in convincing them to go along. You're critical of of way Trump dealt with it, but those threats against Britain worked actually, didn't they? I mean, the British government totally caved because its own its own security system said we can handle this Huawei stuff. There's no uh, security implication for the UK, uh, but still they they went along with what Trump demanded. Uh, they did, and so the uh, the so I would say that the Trump administration's approach, as I say, consisted more of threats than of uh, traditional forms of diplomacy. There were traditional forms of diplomacy which went along with it. And so the, so tr the Trump administration won some important battles, but it did not have any very uh, useful strategy for winning the overall war. Another important uh, aspect of uh, the United States policy towards Huawei uh, was this uh, effort by uh, the United States to prosecute the uh, chief uh, financial officer and heir apparent, uh, the uh, daughter of the founder of Huawei. She found herself... Uh, stranded in Canada for three years while she was uh, under uh, indictment for uh, breaking uh, international, for effectively for breaking financial law. And uh, so this was something that the United States had done. Uh, this was not something that Trump himself had uh, cooked up. But uh, Bolton records how it is that he had this conversation with uh, Trump, where somebody had clearly been talking to Trump trying to persuade him to let this woman go. And the argument that this person had made was that uh, this woman was, quote, the Ivanka Trump of China, unquote. And Trump clearly found this pretty persuasive and was grumpy and was grumbling about why it is that we were going after this person. So you saw on the one hand, you certainly there were some things that the United States did which were effective in the uh, short term. And the United States is if it, you do not want to be on the other side of the United States, it has a terrifying amount of power and influence it can bring to bear. But the ability of the United States to convert this into a long-term strategy to try and stymie China uh, under the Trump administration was non-existent because Trump himself was such a chaotic, disorganized person who really observed used to govern by tweet. So just on um, a couple of points arising from what you've, you've said so far about the internet, just one thing that may not be clear. When we say this stuff goes through the US, uh, it actually physically goes through the US, right? There'll be a building somewhere in America where a lot of global internet traffic is, is passing through and there will be uh, uh, maybe an employee of the company or an employee of the American state who will sit in that building and organize the hack. So the way the way that it works is if people think you know the internet is so easy to use. I mean, of course, we're using it right at the moment to uh, conduct this podcast, and it seems like magic. You just uh, connect your uh, computer into the wireless network, and somehow, miraculously, information appears to 
uh, it seems to appear in one place after having observed left on sort of milliseconds before another place. And you just don't think about what happens going in between. But one of the arguments that we make in the book is that you really have to pay attention to these boring and dull engineering and technical questions because they provide a lot of power. And in this case, what happens is that a lot of information goes on fiber optic cables, which are laid on sort of, the, you know, they go underground, they go uh, beneath the sea, uh, sort of along the, the ocean bed, and that this information travels along these cables. It travel, travels effectively as pulses of light along these fiber optic cables, and then it gets to the other end. When it gets to the other end, it, it goes into a switch, and then um, sort of it gets um, sort of moved from one network to another, and that's the place in which it's possible for uh, the United States to uh, break in and to more or less say, this information is information that we want, and to uh, grab it all and to divert it so that they can see what people are saying to each other. So that there is this book by an individual called Mark Klein. Who, uh, he's one of the people who we interviewed uh, for, the, uh, for the book. And he was a uh, communications engineer, a left communications engineer, working in uh, San Francisco for one of the major United States tele telecommunications companies. And there was a room in his building that nobody was allowed to go into without a security clearance. He eventually becomes one of the people who effectively helps to maintain the room. And he discovers that inside the room, there is, there is a kind of prism which splits off the light that is coming out of the cable and sends half of the signal uh, out to the uh, ordinary network as it ought to be sent and half into a special uh, machine which has been installed by the NSA, which then uh, goes through, looks for particular uh, indicators that this might be uh, valuable information from the point of view of United States security and foreign policy and grabs that information out and makes it available. So let's just ask how how, how precisely this works. So if, if, if someone, I don't know, in Africa writes uh, an email with the word, let's say an email, a, a word of interest to the US, like assassinate, and, and it goes through the US, is it that the US is recording everything and storing it and then does a search to see whether the word assassinate is in it? Or does it pick up suspect emails as they come in and only uh, save those ones? So we don't have a very, very clear idea of a lot of what is happening. Pretty well everything that we know about this comes from the uh, Snowden leaks, which happened a decade ago. And the Snowden leaks were also, and this is something that I think is underappreciated, were limited leaks, uh, so that Snowden and the people around him, you can agree or disagree with uh, many decisions that they made, but it's clear that there were, was a lot of information that they decided not to reveal because they uh, believed that this information was effectively too dangerous from one perspective or another to get at. So we don't have as clear of a sense as we uh, would like of exactly how much, you know, sort of how much information is I'm sort of, uh, going to the NSA. Equally, it's probably pretty clear that uh, not everything is stored and kept by the NSA just because it's impossible to do that. Uh, they, but, but, the, but, but what we do know is that the NSA now finds itself in a position that was, is more or less the opposite of what it was 30 or 40 years ago, when it was extremely difficult to get valuable information uh, and to, uh, you know, so, so that, that the difficulty was in getting the information in the first place. Now the problem that the NSA has is that there is so much information flooding through that might be potentially valuable that actually storing it and searching through it presents some very, very considerable 
technical challenges. And so one of the ways that the NSA tries to deal with this, or has tried to deal with it as best as we can tell from the Snowden leaks, and we don't know nearly as much as we would like to about what has been happening in the intervening decade, is that the, there is a distinction between upstream and downstream information. Uh, so effectively, there are two ways in which the information might work. One might be that the, the NSA is trying to tap into this torrent of information, which is going through these switches. That allows the United, uh, United States access to all of this information uh, you know, so at scale, but this information is really disorganized. You know, so, so it is looking for these uh, specific uh, sort of uh, maybe uh, key terms such as assassination or Biden uh, assassination or whatever, and it picks that information out, but it is very, very hard. It's like this fire hose of information which is happening all the time. So a lot of what the U.S. did was to figure out uh, not just those sort of upstream turns, but also downstream information by going to companies like Google, like Microsoft, and demanding we want access to this or this observed form of uh, information, this or this email, whether this be an uh, email that mentions a specific person that comes from a specific email address or whatever. And the disadvantage of this is that it is uh, probably going to miss out on a lot of stuff. The advantage is that it is much, much easier to uh, collate, to organize, and to parse through to see if there's something valuable or useful there. So a uh, short version is, we do not know how much information the NSA has. It is almost certainly less than the uh, complete body of information that is passing through the United States at uh, any time, because uh, there, there is just, it's just impossible to store uh, for uh, more than the periods of hours or days. I'm sure we just don't have enough capacity to do that. Uh, but we do know that the uh, NSA has enough information passing through that it has uh, been forced to uh, resort to effectively building entire new vast facilities in order to uh, capture and process the information that it does have access to. I read somewhere in your book that they store stuff for a month. What did that refer to? So the, this was, there's uh, one of the uh, Snowden leaks suggests that they uh, took the uh, phone uh, the phone information, all of the phone calls uh, that were uh, conducted in a uh, small country over a period of uh, several weeks, and they uh, stored that just to see if they could and to see what information they could could get from effectively being a, then able to play back uh, these phone calls uh, later in order to figure out uh, sort of what people had said to each other at a particular time. So you're saying that, let's say, again, Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, they could hold every what mobile phone call, a recording of every mobile phone call in that country for a few weeks or a month or something. Uh, that that certainly is what the uh, Snowden leak uh, suggested happened, yes. Now, that said, sorting through that information, searching that information, finding valuable nuggets uh, in there, is a uh, that is something that is very, very hard to do. So it is not, you know, this is not a superpower, but it certainly is, uh, they have access to vaster quantities of information and abilities to at least to some degree to parse through that information far more than I think most people realize. On the phone calls, I wanted to ask you about that. Is there a difference between mobile phone calls in terms of the American capacity to surveil, mobile phone calls, landline phone calls, and satellite phone calls? That uh, is uh, information uh, probably communications engineers will be able to tell you. I don't have a very strong sense of uh, whether there are particular differences. I think that really uh, that really depends on that that really depends on the technical details. A lot of this information at one point or another 
passes through central points. It does pass through switches uh, of one sort or another. So uh, it's probably at that point that a lot of the information can be picked up. And at that point, I would suggest that it's probably pretty indistinguishable. What has happened in the wake of Snowden and what has had important consequences is that a lot of companies pay much more attention to encrypting the data that they have uh, than they used to. So that, for example, uh, Google has, uh, it used to transfer information from one of its server centers to another across uh, across fiber optic cables, you know, so just as massive data transfers, and it used to not encrypt it. It now encrypts it, which makes it much, much more laborious and time-intensive for uh, the NSA to try and get access to it. And so it probably is um, so technically uh, nearly impossible uh, for some forms of information. Uh, there, there may be hidden bugs in the uh, cryptography that they use, which could allow the NSA access. But if that is happening, nobody is telling about it. Certainly, it makes the NSA's uh, uh, life much more difficult than it used to. As Google has also been pushing to try and uh, get everybody on the uh, internet to encrypt as much of their communications as possible, so that, for example, it has been implicitly downgrading sites that do not have uh, HTTPS, which is a, a relatively secure means of, uh, of of conveying information, in order to try and move everybody towards a more secure uh, a more secure uh, uh, more secure uh, uh, setting on cryptography. And this is something, it, it's very, very clear in the wake of these revelations, of the Snowden revelations, there was a lot of anger among big U.S. tech companies. They had known some of what was happening because they were required under U.S. law to secretly hand over a lot of information on customers. They had not realized uh, how much of this information was being taken by the United States in the wild from U.S. companies uh, that were operating outside the territorial uh, boundaries of the United States of America, the NSA seems to have decided that it was it was uh, perfectly okay to do this, and it also worked together with the United Kingdom's GCHQ, which had access to some cables that the United States did not have direct access to in order to do this. And so that, for example, uh, suggests that a lot of Microsoft's uh, data was uh, effectively being uh, taken by the United States. Microsoft's president Brad Smith uh, wrote a, a book where he suggested. Uh, extreme anger and upset at what had happened uh, and how the United States had been doing this in ways that undermined Microsoft's business model and Microsoft's ability to operate in countries which had a uh, a adversarial relationship or even some degree of uh, distrust of the United States. Uh, This meant that Microsoft was seen as being in a certain sense uh, vulnerable to or beholden to the United States of America. Just looking at at the point of view of an individual then, if they're using these... uh internet applications that have encrypted phone calls and texting. Uh, or maybe if they're using landlines, which are basically, you know, old tech and only go, you know, are restricted to the country in which they, they work. So, you know, if you go to, I don't know, Pakistan or somewhere, the, the landlines and won't um, be internationally connected very much. It, it, it's possible then that your call will not be available to the US security system. I would, what I would say is that cryptography is not perfect. Uh, so uh, Bruce Schneier, who's a co-author of mine and who is a real cryptographer in a way that I absolutely am not, he has a dictum that everybody is capable of coming up with some system of cryptography, which uh, has no flaws that they themselves can see, which is perfect as far as they themselves can see. And uh, so 
what we know about cryptography is you know, these are mathematical techniques for encoding information so as to make it difficult for others to uh, to uh, uncode it. Uh, and they, they are far, far better than anything else. But also, uh, we uh, regularly discover there are vulnerabilities in the cryptographic schemes that we use, which uh, we may not have known about. And of course, uh, the United States, GCHQ, other places have people whose lives are devoted to figuring out what these vulnerabilities are and looking to exploit them. And sometimes the vulnerabilities are not in the cryptographic schemes themselves, but they are in the uh, software that is used to implement the cryptography. And sometimes they're just in the uh, human beings, uh, the flawed human beings uh, who are on one end or another of the communications channel and may do really stupid things uh, which provide access to information uh, that, you know, sort of the, the, that governments perhaps should not have. Nonetheless, uh, cryptography does, as far as we can tell, have a pretty important role. This is something that I think is a particular issue of importance in the United Kingdom at the moment. United Kingdom is proposing uh, legal measures that would effectively make it impossible for uh, companies to provide strong cryptography that did not have some form of implicit backdoor access uh, to government. And uh, the way that the government has justified this is uh, by suggesting that this has security implications, that this also has uh, implications for things such as child pornography. But we're seeing very, very strong pushback from companies and businesses, including, for example, Apple, who've suggested that if the United Kingdom moves ahead with these kinds of controls, that Apple is uh, going to pull out certain services from the United Kingdom and refuse to offer uh, uh, British iPhone users, for example, the kinds of secure guarantees that they have as Apple works at the moment. So if you are interested in uh, keeping your information uh, secret, there certainly are services such as, for example, Signal, uh, where there, what I can say is that there are no known major vulnerabilities for services such as Signal. That is not to say that there may not be uh, hidden vulnerabilities that the uh, security services are aware of, but you are probably much, much better off if you're going for a reason, if you're using one of these services, uh, certainly Signal, perhaps to a much lesser extent, another service called Telegram, which has become particularly popular in Russia. Uh, you, using these uh, services makes it uh, rather more difficult for uh, governments to see what it is that you're in fact saying to other people. Right, which means that what you described earlier, this huge capacity to read emails and listen to phone calls is, is yeah, arguably a complete waste of time because any anyone who's got something secret to say is likely to use Signal or whatever it is and, and to reduce the chance of their being listened to. So what's... The, I mean, doesn't that undermine the whole system? So you can make that argument. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm clearly somebody who's very much on the civil liberties side of these uh, of, the, of, of these uh, debates. Equally, and this is one of the things we try to do in the book, is to present the uh, side of the more security-interested uh, people, such as, for example, Michael Hayden, who is the uh, head of the NSA, to give you a sense of what, how it is that they see the world. And I think that the way that they see the world, and I think this is reasonable, is that if you keep perfect security, if you are somebody who is relentless about using uh, cryptographically encrypted communications, using a secure operating system such as Tails, uh, and you do this 24-7, it is going to be extremely difficult for uh, governments to tap into your information without taking the kind of very extreme steps such as uh, you know, so I, I don't know, sort of using some so-called zero-day exploit on uh, your hardware 
actually sort of physically and sort of entering into your room and sort of, uh, uh, getting access that way, it's going to be very, very hard for the government to get access to your information uh, uh, if you take these uh, steps, if you are completely consistent about it. But human beings are not consistent. Uh, they uh, tend sometimes to uh, log in and sort of, uh, you're sort of uh, using uh, less secure services because it's temporarily convenient. They forget, they uh, have brain farts, all of the things that human beings and sort of, uh, uh, do. And uh, over time, if you make a uh, pattern of small errors, it becomes possible then for uh, security services to zoom in. So I think one very good example of this, again, this is something that we don't talk about in the book, is the guy who was the uh, person behind the Silk Road dark market on uh, on, on Tor. This was a uh, hidden drugs market using a particular variant of internet communications, which made it extremely hard for people to uh, for people to uh, to track on sort of who was talking to who. And so this guy created this drug market. So you could buy and sell drugs uh, using Silk Road. And I uh, see as the owner of the market would take a share of what people were buying and selling. This was all using a fairly advanced encryption, not simply the Tor browser, which is a, a encrypted form of communication. Uh, that was created by a branch of the uh, U.S. government, in a sense, or created with the help of a branch of the U.S. government. That's a whole different story. He also, uh, also people are using this uh, PGP, pretty good privacy, uh, as a means to uh, communicate with each other over time and create identities without those identities being linked to uh, physical human beings. But it turns out, if you want to sell drugs back and forth, at some point or another, you need to provide an address that the drugs have to be delivered to. That creates one vulnerability. Uh, there are other vulnerabilities that there turned out to be in the Tor browser, which uh, it looks like were exploited by U.S. law enforcement. And then Brian Ulrich, the guy who was behind all of this, uh, he called himself the Dread Pirate Roberts. He was arrested in the library, which where he was using the wireless network in order to uh, in order to uh, uh, not not do it from home from an, an internet address where he could be traced. And uh, they managed to grab him in time before he could shut down his laptop and encrypt it. And when the laptop is open, when you're able to get physical access, you uh, are able to, uh, as they were, to uh, get uh, access to all of the records, which showed that, in fact, he'd be uh, running this drug market, had tried to contract out the uh, murder of somebody who uh, threatened to leak key details, all of these things which have resulted in him being in a high-security prison. One of the points you make in your book is the control of the internet or the yeah, access to the internet and to these phone calls is, is yeah, a big part of the story. But... There's something else going on, which is access to methods of transferring money around the world. Another thing that's done you know, through all these cables. I mean, it's a slightly different aspect of this, isn't it? But I think it'd be interesting just to ask you to run through briefly the tussle between uh, Europe and the US on control of the SWIFT system. And, you know, there's an American attempt to get, get this uh, power to uh, manage all the financial transactions yeah, of over $10,000, but then Europe managed to do it. But the US has then fought back, pushed back, and got access to that SWIFT system, isn't it? Yeah, so what happened was that after September 11th, 2001, of course, uh, the United States was looking around for ways that it can, for ways that it can track uh, money transfers because one of the things that the September 11th attackers did, the September 11th attackers, they basically used ordinary money transfers to send money back and forth to, uh, to the hijackers. And so there was a lot of unhappiness at post hoc about the ways in which the terrorists have been able to organize and to use 
these systems of globalization, these uh, financial systems, these information systems, to send money to each other, to coordinate this rather complicated international plot, and the United States had effectively been asleep at the wheel. So one of the things that happens immediately after September 11th is the United States Treasury is uh, thinking about ways in which they can gather information, and they immediately turn to the SWIFT system. So SWIFT is this, uh, it's this Belgian-based uh, 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 multi-bank uh, run non-profit organization, which runs financial messages. And uh, the financial system is incredibly complicated, but more or less, when you send money back and forth, uh, whether it be within the United Kingdom, whether it be across the world, one key part of that is messages that are sent back and forth between your bank, the bank that you're transferring money from, and whatever bank you're transferring money to, to ensure that the bank uh, money, that the money uh, is leaves the right account and finds its way to the right account. And so SWIFT uh, then provides, in a sense, it provides a lot of information on who is sending money to who. It has that information. It managed for a long while to keep relatively free from government interference. But after September 11th, it was very, very quickly pressed into service by the United States. And uh, the United States did this all very secretly uh, because uh, SWIFT, as I say, is based in Belgium. And in order to provide all of this information to the United States, it was very, very clearly breaking European privacy law. And so over a couple of years, the United States uh, kept on putting pressure. SWIFT was extremely nervous about this and uh, kept on uh, getting cold feet. Uh, United States uh, sent in people like uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, other people to reassure SWIFT, tell them that they were doing what it was uh, supposed to be doing. But then the United States, two uh, New York Times journalists, uh, uh, Rizal and Lichtblau, they write an article on the front page of the New York Times revealing what the U.S. has been doing and creating this crisis between Europe and the United States. And it has to be said that uh, the crisis is one where there are a lot of pro-privacy people on the European side who are extremely upset about this. This also has consequences for uh, the strains of European privacy legislation down the line. But equally, there were a lot of people in Europe who seemed to have had a pretty good idea of what was going on and to have decided that they preferred that the United States had this power, even if they preferred not to have to know officially what was happening. So uh, there were a couple of European bank officials, for example, who literally, when they were told by U.S. officials uh, what was happening, they, uh, they, 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 they more or less uh, put their hand over their ears and said, la, 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 we can't hear you. They, they, they told the officials they did not want to know anymore. They wanted the officials to shut up immediately about it. So then you get this complicated set of uh, negotiations between the EU and the US, which are result in a deal which has some controls and some limitations on how the US can access this data. And uh, Europe then wants to set up its own system for uh, figuring out what's happening, but uh, that system never gets set up. So Europe effectively ends up giving uh, permission to the United States to engage in these somewhat more limited uses of SWIFT data so long as Europe has access to this data too. And that is more or less the status quo that has persisted ever since. And in, uh, I should also say that in addition to the information that SWIFT hands over formally, it appears that the NSA independently also was tapping into uh, SWIFT information uh, under a uh, system which presumably is not subject to the same kinds of uh, somewhat minimal controls as the uh, controls that the United States gradually agreed to under its agreement with the That's right. So they got two ways in into SWIFT. Yeah. Well, well, just looking ahead, a couple of issues. Um, first of all, 5G. Does 5G 
help China? Does it help the US? How will 5G affect things? So 5G, it, 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 5G is in some ways, it's a somewhat more decentralized system, which means that, uh, which means that it is, uh, it's, uh, and this was one of the, the big reasons that there was nervousness about Huawei, because if Huawei uh, had really invested in 5G and had built the world's 5G systems out to the extent that it wanted to, then it would perhaps have had much deeper reach into the internals of the system than uh, under previous uh, previous under 4G or other systems uh, it would have had. So I think that 5G, it uh, the question I think is less what does the technology, what does the, 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 who does the technology empower? Then what kinds of uh, activities does the technology empower? And so I think we're moving into a world where more and more we're seeing our devices uh, uh, connect to the internet and 5G makes that easier. And a lot of these devices are incredibly badly secured. Uh, there is no legal obligation uh, in, in reality that makes some sort of uh, device manufacturers have to produce secure devices so that uh, there are a lot of producers, for example, in China and elsewhere, who are maybe less interested in providing secret access to the uh, Chinese government than in producing something as cheaply as possible. And this means that they tend to cut corners on security. And this then means that everybody can tap into it. So I think that the issues for 5G are less whether China or the United States is advantage than whether this just provides much, much, much more ability for people to, uh, for uh, for governments everywhere to tap into communications because there are so many badly secured devices that are going to be connecting to uh, the internet via 5G and you know, so our bridges, our other things are going to be providing information. Most of that information, again, is going to be pretty useless, but sometimes that information will be quite useful. And one of the things that I think there, so the uh, Netflix series, Lupa, uh, which uh, is a fun series on a whole seventh round. One of the episodes that I thought really captured super well is that there's a somewhat paranoid police officer who is aware that he is at risk of being uh, tapped into for corrupt meetings that he's engaged in. And he uh, goes around his house, he finds a whole bunch of bugs, which we put there by Lupin, by his antagonist. But what he doesn't realize is that the secret system that he has is also something which is a fundamental security mm -hmm. in it. And uh, he just talks this all the time. And it is through this that the information gets leaked. And the more and more that we have these devices around our home, the more and more that we have smart devices that allow for voice communications, the easier it is for people to tap in. And the more that a technology such as 5G encourage device manufacturers to connect in so that they uh, phone home to the mothership, the greater the degree of uh, insecurity that we get as a result. And not simply for ourselves, uh, very often we see these devices, such as uh, poorly secured security cameras, poorly secured uh, household devices that connect to the internet, being used, for example, by hackers to uh, conduct vast distributed denial of service attacks in which these uh, devices all coordinate together to try and request data from a particular server on the internet and completely overload it. And this is possible or made much easier because of the lousy security that, that we have uh, for our devices connected to 5G. The Russians we hear from time to time are practicing snapping cables on the seabed, you know, that they control hooks or something and break them. Is that happening? And presumably that would be a clever thing for Russia to do, because if America's the one, or China and America are the ones with all these cables, then there's not much that could be done in response, because Russia doesn't have any to hit back on. 
we we do have some evidence that suggests that Russia has uh, snapped cables uh, or other actors have snapped cables. Uh, we also have evidence of uh, China have been creating satellite busters, uh, which are intended clearly to go for uh, security, you know, for, for uh, they could be used against uh, surveillance satellites, they could also be used against communication satellites. So uh, in general, the world that we have created is a world which has incredibly vulnerable linkages under that, uh, you know, so that convey information from one point to another, which can fairly readily be disrupted. Uh, but one of the interesting things I've seen from the recent war is that there has been much less of that than one might have expected. There has been much less in the way of uh, basic infrastructure attacks. And I think part of the reason for that is because Russia, uh, Russia could certainly exploit the vulnerabilities of Western countries, but Russia itself is extremely vulnerable to attack. So that uh, there were a lot of predictions that we were going to see cyber war being let loose. Uh, uh, should there be a physical, uh, should there be a physical war of one sort or another? And we've certainly seen a variety of different cyber attacks being uh, unleashed upon things such as Ukraine's power system and so on. But we've seen much, much less happening to our countries in the West than one might have expected. I give the vulnerabilities. And I think that is because uh, Russia is entirely aware that its systems too are deeply vulnerable to hacking, have probably been penetrated in great and intimate detail by uh, US and other hackers, and that they themselves are uh, worried that if they start messing around with, say, for example, with basic infrastructure, with uh, power supplies and so on, that they will find uh, themselves uh, wide open to a similar similar kinds of attacks and uh, probably even more vulnerable. We're, we're very grateful for your explanation of what you found out. So thank you very much indeed for taking us through it. And thank you so much as well. This was a very fun conversation. Thank you.